Welcome to Metro Health's Prescription for Hope. I'm John Campanelli. The coronavirus crisis has been pretty lousy for all of us. Sickness, fear, economic collapse, stress, frustration, isolation. Now imagine dealing with the pandemic as an adolescent, stuck inside, away from school, away from freedom, but still accompanied by the cauldron of young adult emotions, always boiling and boiling away. Thankfully, we have people who've dedicated their lives to the health and well-being of adolescents. People like Dr. Steger. Okay, so I'm Dr. Peggy Steger, and I'm the director of the Division of Adolescent and Young Adult Medicine. Dr. Steger was kind enough to stop down to the Metro Health studio recently to talk about what the virus has meant to her, her patients, and their care, and to offer her own prescription for hope. What's the best part of the job? The best part of the job is the patients. Absolutely. I love what I do. I love my age range that I see is between 12 and 26. Huge developmental differences. Think about yourself at age 12 and who you were, and then age 17, and then again at age 23 or 24. And think how different you were, yet you were still you, mm-hmm. right? I get to see that. If I have the the gift of seeing someone for that long, from 12 to 26, it's fascinating to me to watch them develop. I'm trying to do the math. If you've had a patient who you've, are seeing their kids, you probably have. You had a, a, pa- a patient, former patient? I have a former patient who now has a teenager who now I take care of. Oh, that's great. Mm-hmm. It's a little nerve-wracking, right? It's kind of like, wow, how did that happen? I can't possibly be that old. How? So you go... Uh, and we've all been kids, and a lot of us have kids, and you go into the appointments when your child is young. There comes a point where your kid doesn't want you in the appointment anymore, but maybe the parent wants to. (laughs) How do you decide when that's the right time, or can you do a little bit of both? What's kind of the rule of thumb there? So the practice of adolescent medicine is learning that, right? Helping the teenager learn. How do I give my own history? How do I tell my story? How do I be in the room by myself with the doctor and build a bond and relationship directly with the doctor? Remember, in general pediatrics, when uh, the doctor is seeing the baby or the toddler, mom or dad or grandparent or guardian is always in the room. So the child has grown up being used to having some other adult in the room with them. So we begin it right away. Even if they're 12, we'll practice. I'll say, you know, would you mind, Mom, just stepping out for a few minutes? We're going to practice a little bit and see what this is like. The younger teenagers are a little hesitant, but by the time they're 15 or 16, they're ready for it. And, you know, we set it as a policy. And in fact, it's really a national standard. We're not doing anything different here than the national standard. And 99% of the time, the parents are fine with it. And for the 1% that aren't, we work with them. And what are 16, 17-year-olds' rights if they want to disclose something to you than maybe not their parents? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of legal boundaries and laws in place to help teenagers and adolescents access care and have confidential care. So areas, for example, where they can access care without parental consent is in realms of pregnancy, STD testing, drug abuse, problems with alcohol, mental health issues, or areas where they may be uh, abused or have concerns for abuse or neglect. How have, right now it's early June, how 
the last three months affected you? How are you doing? Um, I'm doing okay. I'm doing all right. I, I've learned that every week is a new week. So whether it's new data about the virus and the pandemic, or it's new policy changes here at Metro Health, or it's new information about how the disease affects um, a person who's sick with it, or a new study trial, there's just, it's an evolving situation. And as a physician, uh, it's important for me to constantly be checking on that so that I'm fully aware of what this virus might look like for our patients. And you went from seeing patients in person to really fairly quickly, almost exclusively telehealth, right? And how did that go for you? Yeah, that was what I would call a steep mountain. <laughs> that was really straight up because we went from pretty much our usual routine. I'm, I'm in outpatient medicine, so we run a busy clinic in the outpatient pavilion. And almost overnight, things were closed, right? Metro Health made the decision that we're not going to have in-person visits, that there was a great concern about the virus spreading. We didn't know where we were on the curve. We just knew it was going up here in Ohio, and Metro Health took all the appropriate actions to stop the spread of the virus. In doing so, we didn't want to disconnect with our patients. We didn't want to say, oh, we're closed, goodbye. But rather, we can't see each other in person, but let's figure out how we can stay connected. So the good news for me is that Probably 85 <clears throat> to 90% of my patients have cell phones, their own cell phones. And they're not afraid to use them. They, right. They probably would prefer to text with me, but we got them to talk on their phones. But yeah, immediately switched to telehealth. And then all of the visits, my schedule was then really just telehealth. And the options were telephone, right? Talk on the phone. Or the other option is video. And one of the challenges, not all my patients had... Wi-Fi access or strong Wi-Fi access to support the video component. So most of the time we did phone. And how was that experience better, worse, different than an in-person visit? Yeah, so um, it was much more challenging for me because without the video component, I can't see their face. And I'm an observer, right? I've been trained in observation. It's just something that's going on all the time for me when I'm talking with someone. So I'm a keen observer of adolescent body language, expressions, eye rolls, you know, changes in their sitting position, the way they wear their hair, et cetera. And I can't really see that on the phone. I can listen. You know, I really had to train my ear. And so I often had to use different expressions to confirm what I was hearing. So if um, I heard them say, I'm okay. I might say, well, is it I'm okay, not really good? Or I'm okay, I'm, today's a good day. Help me understand that. But the big difference um, for me also was that I didn't know if they necessarily had privacy to talk with me. I didn't know who was listening in, like little brother or little sister, you know how they are, around the corner, or mother with her ear on the door. And um, so it was a different experience with regard to confidentiality. And I constantly have to check in on that. I, I'll ask them, do you have, you know, feel like you have privacy right now? And at the time, it was still pretty cold. It, unlike now, where they, I can say to them, why don't you go for a walk? See, ask your mom if you can just go for a quick walk, you know, 10 houses down and back, and we can just chat. Or go sit in the car. That's another place that they could have some privacy. But I, I worried about that. I felt at times I wasn't getting my alone time. And what were the issues your patients 
what are the things you are hearing or still hearing also today? Mm-hmm. Of course, at the forefront, when this first started, most of the conversations were around illness and illness symptoms. I have a cough. I don't feel well. I have a stomach ache. I have a fever. And we were using the telehealth to determine, could this be COVID? Could this be something else? Should I bring them in? How should I bring them in safely uh, for themselves and also for the healthcare workers as well? In the meantime, it's um, the other piece of it, though, that that I've really felt is very important is um, checking in about their overall well-being. So while we might be talking about one thing, like I have a rash and I'm not sure what it is, or my elbow hurts because I fell, an important piece of that conversation is, how are you doing? I often ask about school. How is school going? What's it like for you? How are you doing with online learning? Now, school is pretty much over now, but at the time, um, it was an important question. I also asked if um, anyone in their family lost their job. And then I wanted to know, how are they doing in the house? Did they have any trouble meeting their need for rent or utilities? And was there any need for food or any other social services. That went hand-in-hand with every telehealth visit. And frankly, I still do it today. I'm seeing patients in person now, but I still do it now because I want to hear how else can we help you. And we have excellent resources here at Metro Health and also in the community to help people who are struggling right now. And over the past three months, and now as we're ramping up in-person visits again, there's been a lot of care that's been delayed put off and if you just talk about that and and what should be happening now. That's an area of concern, most definitely in pediatrics, not only here at Metro Health, but also around the country. Um, What we're seeing now that we've had a chance to kind of look back, right, and begin to reflect on the last several weeks is that pediatric well visits are down. So uh, an example includes uh, general pediatrics, and this is when uh, children are coming at the very young ages between zero and five to do their health checks, their developmental checks, and then also their vaccinations. And here in Metro Health, our general pediatrics visits, our well visits, are down 50%, cut in half. And I would say that's true across the board. Our subspecialty visits, so that would be pediatric pulmonology or pediatric GI, or in my case, adolescent medicine, those are down about 40%. The concern is then is, well, what's happening with all that care? So if we were to break that down for both children and teenagers, there are vaccinations that are due throughout those age groups. Even teenagers need vaccines. There are several. There's been excellent look back on data on what would have been the number of vaccines that would have been due in approximately this time. And it's in the 100,000. It's about 200,000 vaccines that would have been due across the country in the various age groups that have not been given. The concern is, is if we don't catch up, that there may be new outbreaks of what's called vaccine-preventable diseases. Measles is a perfect example. I will tell you that the mindset of stay at home, stay at home, many people took very seriously. In fact, so seriously, they didn't venture out at all. There was a young man who came to see me and he had taken a fall in April. There happened to be nice weather one day in April off of his skateboard. 
and uh, fell and injured his arm, but was too afraid to come to the emergency room to get the x-ray. Never got the x-ray. I saw him six weeks later, and he had an improperly healed fracture of his arm. I have another patient um, who has diabetes type 1 and also had some emotional health issues that were interfering with his ability to take care of himself and his diabetes. And he had trouble connecting through telehealth just out of his emotional health problems, mental health problems. When I finally got to see him, he was in a very serious condition called diabetic ketoacidosis or DKA with a very high sugar and and problems with his electrolytes and so forth, and immediately went right from my clinic to the intensive care unit. So I, I, I tell you these stories, again, not to reveal anyone's personal history, but to illustrate that this messaging around stay at home, stay at home, stay at home, it's wild out there. Uh, people took very seriously, and unfortunately for some, it was detrimental. Now we've got to include some education around, well, it's safe to go out, but here's sort of the guidelines that you need to follow. And we have heard those, right? There's been public service announcements, messaging from the governor, messaging from our public health department, et cetera, which is wear a mask, stay six feet apart, continue to wash your hands, don't touch your face, that sort of thing. Uh, But we need to include, it's safe to come to see us in the outpatient clinic. At Metro Health here, we have separate facilities for our emergency room and also our outpatient clinic. They're two very distinct and separate buildings. We've gone to great lengths in the outpatient building to make sure that patients feel safe and that they know that we're paying attention. So they will be greeted at one door and one door only that's open. The remainder remain locked. You'll be greeted by a nurse who asks you how you're doing. She'll run through a few symptoms, she'll take your temperature, and if all seems well and everything's fine, she will give you a mask if you don't have one and direct you on your way. That screening process allows, I hope, everyone to know that not we're not allowing for large volumes to come in. I want you to think of it more of like a funnel, right? That you have to sort of pass through the funnel and if everything's good, you can continue to come in the building. The other thing is you'll see a lot less people in the building. There's just a lower volume. And then when you do come into the waiting room, you'll see that chairs are closed or marked off. Don't sit here. You can sit here. Don't sit here. You also see that um, there's a short wait in the waiting room. We try to move right from registration, barely sit down, and then right back to the vital signs and then into the room. The rooms are cleaned very thoroughly in between patients, and that's why we can't have our schedules entirely full right now because we have to allow time once one person leaves to do a full cleaning of the room, and that takes several minutes. And by the time they get to you, what are they saying about uh, this process? Of coming in the building. Oh, and- right. So um, I will ask them. I often ask them. First of all, I always comment on their masks because now that mask production is going up, particularly in um, manufacturing and then also in homes, there's a lot of creative masks that come in. Oh, I you really- got to tell me some of the best masks that you've seen. Oh, um, I had one girl with a black mask on like this that had rhinestones and she had matching rhinestones on her sandals and a little bit on her shirt. That was adorable. Um, one girl uh, worked for McDonald's. 
and she had her McDonald's uniform on and she had a red mask on with the yellow smile, you know, sort of like Ronald McDonald's smile, which was adorable. Um, others have masks related to what they like. So it might be um, anime, you know, like an anime thing. And so I, we, that's the first point of conversation. I was like, hey, I like your mask. They look great. And there's always a story about it. So we talk about their masks. And then I say, how'd it go? How was it? coming in here because I'm, I'm genuinely interested what the experience is like. And they say, wasn't that bad? No, wasn't that? They're like, they're surprised. Oh, was, no, wasn't that bad? That was fine. And I say, good. All right. Well, let us know because, you know, we want to make it a good experience for everybody. We want you to come back. Summer vacation is starting. And, and I guess kind of what's your advice to adolescents, young adults, parents, guardians, as we start the summer after the crazy end of school. This is a challenging time because although the weather says it's summer, but we still have to pay attention to the virus and how it may affect you or the family. For teenagers in particular, I think it's important um, that they have something constructive, something purposeful to find meaning to their day or even one project they're bored. They're bored. School is over. And so what to do? And you know what? They don't want to hang around with their parents. They're tired of the parents. They've been with their parents. And so I, I'm, I'm inviting everyone to think of what, what is something constructive that a teenager can do? What might that look like? Might it be making masks for those that like craft? Might it be um, helping out with Meals on Wheels? or the animal shelter. I, I don't know. I'm just sort of throwing the possibilities out there. Might it be getting help with voter registration? I like that one because my patients turn 18 when they're with me, so I like to get everybody registered to vote. Um, th th there needs to be something meaningful for them to experience, and it's going to be an exploration to figure out what that might be, and it might take several tries, but I want to emphasize that. Now that the weather's better and we can get out and do more things safely, I want to encourage families to think about that, that this should not be a lost summer, but rather a summer perhaps with purpose. So this uh, podcast is called Prescription for Hope. What is your hope when we get to the other side of this? The positives that I've seen with the COVID pandemic is that I believe there's been a national awakening to this concept that every job is important. Every job has value and the dignity of work. I think the other positive is that it's been a wake-up call for public health and public health issues, realizing that uh, we're in this together. It matters whether we wear a mask or whether we wash our hands or whether we shake hands. All of this matters. And I think that's important. I think that's been an important unity factor. I like to see it that way. And so I like to think that our prescription for hope is uh, recognizing one another and that we are one big community. That's Dr. Margaret Steger, Director of the Division of Adolescent and Young Adult Medicine at Metro Health. Do yourself a favor and follow her excellent Twitter account, at Dr. Steger. It's at D-R-S-T-A-G-E-R. -E Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back with more episodes soon.
In the meantime, please keep washing your hands, wearing your mask, and being kind.